this morning. Christmas is always such a happy time of year. It struck me this morning that uh, Christmas means, of course, for all of us, there's the gladdening of our hearts because of the great gospel theme that it is, and that always just rejoices the heart of every Christian is what carries us every day. But this season of year, we focus on it a little more. It's a happy thing for that reason. Christmas is also a happy occasion because of family get-togethers. Sometimes families separated by space over the through the year are now together. I thought this morning as well, Jesse and Emily, this is their first Christmas together married. We're happy for them. But of course we are aware of those for whom Christmas will be marked by some difficulty as well. The Souter family. Sally has lost a family member this week, and uh, Christmas has a bit of a, a shadow cast over it because of that, but we trust this will be a happy time for all of you to be encouraged in the gospel of Christ. And I want to encourage you as well to be here this evening for our Christmas sing. That is always a good time. Speaking of which... <clears throat> It's not likely that too many of you remember this, but some of you might. Three or four years ago at our Christmas sing, the Sunday evening service, I was asked to give a five or ten minute devotional. And you know I can do that, but I can't do it without complaining. And you might remember that I complained then that I only had five or ten minutes to develop Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. That will be our text this morning. Finally, I will feel better. Matthew chapter 2. Before we read that, I would like you to look back to the prophet Isaiah. So Matthew chapter 2, you can keep your hand there. And then look back just briefly to Jeremiah. Did I say Isaiah? Jeremiah chapter 31. <clears throat> now, I will be making some references to the, this passage and also this section of the book of Isaiah. Just to call to your memory briefly right now, Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33 are often referred to as Jeremiah's book of comfort where here God prophesies of the good that he will do for Judah. Now, in chapter 31, we have a wonderful highlighting of that. You will see some of it just glancing through the chapter, beginning with verse 1. At that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel. They shall be my people. And then he goes on through the chapter to say, I will build you, you will be built you will plant vineyards, you'll be prosperous, you'll sing aloud with gladness, and on with this kind of tone through the chapter. We'll talk about that a little more as we go on. For now, just notice verses 15 and 16. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel, is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping 
and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Now, Matt, you can keep a marker here if you like. We may be back. And now Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> now begin with verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and here they quote the prophet Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was born, or what, where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. and Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and here the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, which we read in chapter 31 of his prophecy. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's bow for prayer. <clears throat> Our Father, we are grateful for the great message of the gospel that you have sent a savior to redeem us from our sin what a great message it is what an astounding truth that God the son would come in such a humble way to save us we pray that you would 
refresh the hearts of your people this morning in this reminder of him, in this reminder of your coming good on a promise to send our deliverer for us. We pray in his name. Amen. As you are aware, Matthew writes his gospel in large part to demonstrate for us that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And because of that, one of the marks of Matthew's gospel is this theme fulfilled. Fulfilled. It's hard to overstate the importance of that theme for the gospel of Matthew. Fulfilled. In fact, in the birth narratives of Jesus that we see in Matthew 1 and 2, we find that word repeated several times. If you want to glance back, chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, she'll bear a son, you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and here Isaiah Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. But notice that little formula at the beginning of verse 22. This took place to fulfill. This took place to fulfill. You'll see that again in chapter 2, verse 15. This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here he quotes Hosea, out of Egypt I have called my son. We'll see it again in our text this morning, verses 17 and 18. This was to fulfill what the Lord, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And here he quotes Jeremiah 1, or 31, verse 15. See it again in chapter 2, verse 23. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And it's not just in the birth narratives either that we see this in Matthew's gospel. We see it again and again throughout the uh, gospel. Matthew chapter 4, for example, verses 13 and following. Here he quotes the famous prophecy from Isaiah 9. Um, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Isaiah had promised that light would come to the Gentiles, and here in Jesus' ministry that prophecy is fulfilled. Chapter 5, verse 17 is a famous one as well, where Jesus himself speaks. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We have it again in chapter 8, verse 17, where Jesus' healing ministry fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. Chapter 12, verse 17 and following, we find Matthew quoting one of the Isaiah's servant songs, Isaiah chapter 42, uh, verses 1 through 3. They're again fulfilled in Jesus. We find the same in Matthew 13, where Jesus speaking in parables. In Matthew 13, verses 34 and following, says it is a fulfillment of prophecy as well. Chapter 21, verses 4 and following, the triumphal entry. Uh, riding on a donkey there to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah. Matthew chapter 26, verses 53 to 56. He is arrested just as, uh, 
And as it had been prophesied, his disciples were scattered again in fulfillment of what was spoken before. And then again, finally, Matthew 27, verse 9, the 30 pieces of silver for which Jesus was betrayed was again fulfilling what was prophesied of him. So we have this fulfilled, 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 running throughout Matthew's gospel. And in fact, this theme runs through Matthew's gospel, not only with the word, the same verbiage, to be fulfilled or that it might be fulfilled, but often in other words as well. For example, chapter 2 that we have read already, uh, we have in verses uh, 5 and 6, without the fulfillment formula, obviously pointing back here to the prophet Micah to show that in Jesus this prophecy was fulfilled. In fact, it's pretty clear, in light of all of that especially, it's pretty clear that Matthew starts his gospel with exactly this tone. Chapter 1 and verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, if you've read your Old Testament at all, you know that these are massive themes in the Old Testament, that God had promised to Abraham that in his seed all the families of the world would be blessed. He had promised to David that his son would reign on a throne forever and forever. And Matthew then comes and says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, that is to say, this great tree of David, now hacked down to a stump, has a shoot growing out of it, and it is Jesus who will fulfill the great Davidic promise. Son of Abraham, in him, in his seed, all of the families of the world will be blessed. And so if... If the Old Testament is stamped with this note of expectation, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. We get to the end of the Old Testament, still, he's coming, he's coming. And we open up the New Testament, and the first word is, he's here. Fulfillment is Matthew's agenda here. His motivation is to demonstrate that in Jesus, centuries of promise reach their goal and find fulfillment. The long-promised Messiah is here. Now when we come to our text, in Matthew 2, verses 16 through 18, we have this horrible account of Herod's infamous slaughter of the innocents. Herod recognized that the Magi had tricked him, had left another way, and so he decreed in seeking to kill this one who was born king. He decreed that all of the children, all of the boys in that entire region, two years and under, to be put to death. It's an awful scene. It's entirely in keeping with what we know about Herod from extra-biblical sources as well. This is the man who executed his wife, several of his children, because he suspected they were plotting against him. It's reminiscent also of another king who ordered the destruction of infants. If you've read your Bible, you remember it. In the book of Exodus, Pharaoh, just, uh, decreeing the 
murder of all of those baby boys. And in that awful tragedy, Moses still emerging triumphant. And this is part of Matthew's presentation of Jesus as the new and greater Moses. Well, this horrible slaughter of the children in the region of Bethlehem would, of course, bring awful grief to the mothers and the families who had lost their children. I've seen this in the movies, and I don't think they come close to capturing the awful wail that must have been heard in Bethlehem that night. Matthew describes the scene here just briefly, and he describes it as, in verse 18, Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel, the mother of Israel, as it were, weeping for her children. Now, you may remember that Rachel, if you can remember the book of Exodus, Rachel was the wife of Jacob. She was barren. She was desperate to have a child, said to, Joseph, to her husband Jacob, give me a child or I will die. And you remember Joseph was born to Rachel. And because she, Rachel is Joseph's mother, she is also then the grandmother of Ephraim and Manasseh, the two most, which became the two most powerful tribes in northern Israel of the northern tribes. She was also the mother of Benjamin. She died in childbirth, you might remember. But the child of Benjamin, who of course was aligned with Judah in the southern tribes. And so we have here Rachel, sort of the mother of all of the tribes of Israel, of both the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel. Now actually, as we saw here, Matthew is quoting Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15. In that context, although it is filled, as I mentioned, filled with references to God's blessing and what he will do to favor his people, he's referring to an event that, again, was a horrible event. And that was the exile of Judah. You'll remember the story, is it? played out in the Old Testament that because Judah had been disobedient, just like the northern kingdom before it, Judah also, because of its disobedience, would be carried off into exile. And so Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, comes, sacks Israel, and carries off many of its leading citizens, deports them off to other parts of the world. Ramah is mentioned here as well, verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Ramah was a little town near Bethlehem. It's traditionally believed to be the burial site of Rachel. Genesis 35 may hint to that. More than that, it is also along the border of the northern and the southern kingdom. And perhaps most to the point... Rama was also the staging point in the exile. Isaiah and Hosea both make reference to Rama in that regard. And so when these captives were carried off, Rama served as a staging point for their departure. And coincidentally, this is the burial place of Rachel, the mother of Israel, 
And so now Rachel is weeping over the loss of her children who are being carried off into exile. So Rachel now, the mother of the northern and southern tribes, northern and southern kingdom, Rama on the border, representing both the northern and the southern kingdom. Now both the northern and the southern kingdoms have been defeated and carried off. Israel has been completely crushed. Many have been, have been killed. And now those, of those who are left, many are being just deported and taken away. And Rachel, the mother of Israel, now long dead, of course, is pictured as watching the scene as it plays out in Ramah. And this woman who was so desperate to have children now is wailing because they are being taken away. First Israel and then Judah. And Rachel is left to wail and to mourn. And now Matthew says, Rachel is weeping again. This whole incident with Herod killing the little boys in Bethlehem and in the whole region brings a great wail in Israel. And again, it is very appropriate to see the mother of Israel weeping over her children who have been killed. Now what's interesting here is that in verse 17, Matthew refers to all of this as a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. This then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, if you still have Jeremiah 31 handy, you can look back and you'll see that this, this quote that Matthew gives is a reference back to Israel's and Judah's deportation and exile. Rachel weeping then. But Matthew is saying that it, for some, in some way, those tears were prophetic. The wailing was prophetic. Looking forward for an answer. And now Matthew brings that together in this account of the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. You'll notice in, Ma in Jeremiah 31, 15, it is not a prophecy as such, this shall come to pass. Her tears themselves are not a prophecy, but it's treated that way in the, math in the book of Matthew. So the question then is, what is the connection? Jeremiah, the prophet, was called from God for basically two kinds of ministry. They're outlined for us at the very beginning of the book. We find it in chapter 1 and verse 10. On the one hand, Jeremiah was called to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, and to overthrow. To pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, and destroy. Now, of course, Jeremiah didn't lead any armies. But this was his ministry because Jeremiah proclaimed the word of the Lord of destruction and overthrow, and breaking down. And so kingdoms are uprooted and overthrown. In particular, Judah will be uprooted and overthrown because God has said so through his prophet Jeremiah. 
The other part of Jeremiah's ministry, not only to pluck up and to break down and to destroy and to overthrow, the other part of his ministry was to build up and to plant. And again, Jeremiah didn't lead in the beginning of a new kingdom, establish a new dynasty or anything like that, but Jeremiah proclaimed the word of the Lord of rebuilding, that God would bless his people as he had promised. And in that sense, then, Jeremiah is rebuilding and planting. And so these are the two themes overall of Jeremiah's prophecy, judgment and restoration. Judah's sin had brought judgment, but because of God's mercy and faithfulness to his promise, he would bring blessing as well. But even in those early chapters of Jeremiah, which are so dominated with the message of judgment and judgment and judgment to come, even in those early chapters of Jeremiah, dominated so much by this note of judgment, there are hints of hope. If you'd like to glance back at Jeremiah chapter 3, Jeremiah 3 verses 12 and following, there we have again the reminder that because of God's mercy, both houses of Israel will be reunited in the land under God's blessing. God will send shepherds after his own heart. He will lead his people in righteousness. He'll give them knowledge. He'll give them understanding. He'll plant them in their own land. He'll give them a heart to obey. We find that in Jeremiah 24. Again in Jeremiah 32. God will circumcise their hearts. He'll give them a heart to obey. And so on. And all of this blessing will come. Not because of anything about Judah. But because God is a merciful God. And he has promised to bless. He is faithful to his word. Now then, that brings us to Jeremiah 30, verse, uh, chapters 30 to 33, which, as I mentioned earlier, is known as the book of comfort. The book of comfort. And in this book of comfort, Jeremiah gathers together and restates many of the blessings that he had hinted at earlier and now expands on them. Distress will come to Judah because she has sinned, but she will be saved from it, and she will finally serve God and David her king. God will give her a heart to obey, and she will be blessed. One of my favorite expressions in this whole section, Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3, where God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. And that sums up the whole story. I've loved you with an everlasting love. And in this context, in a way, it just bursts out of nowhere. Here is Judah in her unfaithfulness. And Judah must be judged because of it. And yet in the midst of it all, God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And because of that, not because of you, because of that, because I have loved you with an everlasting love, and I have promised, I continue in my faithfulness to you. And this marvelous message of grace, as you know, in Jeremiah comes to a climax in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and following, where we have the promise of a new covenant. The old covenant has failed. 
There were terms of blessing that were stated. Obey and you will be blessed. Violate the covenant. Disobey and you will be cursed. And as it played out, of course, that covenant wasn't sufficient. It made no provision for obedience. It couldn't change the heart. And then neither could it grant forgiveness. It was a ministry of condemnation. And so God says precisely because that covenant won't do what is needed for my people. I'll establish a new covenant. And in this new covenant, verses 31 through 34, in this new covenant I'll forgive their sins. And I'll bring every one of them to know me. And every one of them will be blessed. And so God promises to transform his people and to forgive their sins. And the passage, this passage then in Matthew looks back to all of that. Noting that it's forward look to blessing. Jeremiah himself looking ahead to blessed, a time of blessing that will come. And tucked away in this book of comfort, Jeremiah 30 to 33, tucked away in one little spot is one lone expression of sorrow. And that's verse 15 of chapter 31. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are not. Nevertheless, there is cause for rejoicing. God will come in mercy and accomplish for his people all that he required of them. And so he says in the very next verse, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of their enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. As he says down in verse 20, Ephraim is God's darling child. God will make a new covenant with his people. He'll forgive their sins, no longer remember their sins. He'll give them a heart to obey cause them to walk in obedience to him and they will be blessed that's Jeremiah and it's all of this now in Matthew chapter 2 that Matthew reaches back and grabs and pulls into his account of this awful slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. Centuries later in Bethlehem again near the birthplace of Rachel there's weeping again And the weeping again is for the same kinds of reasons. The children are no more. At this time, it's not because of Assyria. It's not because of Babylon. This time, it's because of the Edomite king, Herod. But even here, amidst this awful slaughter, Rachel's tears, he says, are fulfilled. That is to say, Rachel's tears find their answer. Looking for comfort, Rachel weeping, wishing for some blessing. And here, those tears are answered. Her tears are fulfilled because in the arrival of this son of Israel, now the exile ends. In this son of Israel, though now he is exiled to Egypt as well, 
God will establish a new covenant and bring about the comfort of Israel that has been so long promised. Herod will not have the last say. Rachel's tears are fulfilled here. And this one that Herod seeks with all of his royal might to, fulfill, to, to destroy will himself one day become king and bring comfort. With all of that, we have to see then that even here in this infancy narrative, there's the anticipation of the cross. It is promised in Jeremiah that Rachel's tears will be over, that comfort will come, and that climaxes in the new covenant promise, that God will make this new covenant and the people will be restored. Of course, we can't at this point in history, if we've read the book even once, we can't even hear about new covenant without thinking in terms of the Lord's table and the words of our Lord. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, God will bless his people, but how will he do it? Those of you in the Sunday school hour heard it this morning. The justice of God must be satisfied. And here God sends his own son to bear the iniquity of his people and standing in their place to take their curse secures not only their forgiveness but secures every blessing for them. Again, in this infancy narrative, we can't help but see the anticipation of the cross. We have not understood the Christmas event until we see a cross looming large over the manger. We celebrate the fact that he has come, but the story only begins there. He has come to die, not under the hands of Herod. He has come to die under the judgment of God himself in the place of his people. And in his death, he secures all covenanted blessings and Matthew is simply saying here then in verse 17 and 18 that here in the arrival of Jesus Rachel's weeping and we might even say our weeping is over here it finds fulfillment it finds its answer of course it looks forward still to the great culmination of it in the return of Christ but here in this event in the arrival of this baby God come in the flesh. God come to the rescue. In the arrival of Jesus, we have God's answer to his promise to bless. And this and nothing less is the significance of Christmas. He who was rich for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. God the Son entered into our sufferings so that by his suffering he would redeem us from the cause of our sufferings, from all of our sin. And here in Jesus' suffering and acting a new covenant, we have the end of sin 
and therefore, ultimately, the end of all sorrow. He took my sins and my sorrows and made them his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. This is certainly cause for not only for drying tears, but this is cause for celebration. And not just one day a year, of course, but this is what gladdens our heart every day. That's part of the reason we love Christmas so much is because it has this reminder of the gospel that we rejoice in so much. Every day, all year, every year, and for all eternity, what we will rejoice in is that the Lord Jesus has come in answer to God's promise and by his sufferings and death has secured every blessing for us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you for Jesus. How we thank you that you have in him fulfilled every promise that you have made. We thank you that we can come to you with confidence because we have a Savior who has done for us what you require of us. Father, how we love you for your grace in sending your Son. Lord Jesus, how we love you for coming to our rescue. And we rejoice in that grace today. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let's sing together.